I'm delighted to bring God's word to you today. It's been a joy to sing together, to pray together, to read scripture together. Uh, but now it is time for the word of God to be read and heard and believed through the preaching of God's word. And so I invite you now to turn to the book of Zechariah. And we'll be looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through chapter 6, verse 8. You can find that on page 794 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Zechariah, starting in chapter 5, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying squirrel. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying squirrel. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out, according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out, according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven, after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country, the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Let's pray together. We believe, our Father, that your spirit has inspired this text, that it is the very word of God, the mouth of God, the voice of God addressing us. We confess that to be true. And yet, Lord, we also confess there are many times when your word is hard, 
when we struggle to understand. And so we humble ourselves before you this morning. And we pray that the same Spirit who caused these words to be written and has preserved them would now illuminate our understanding and help us to see some new facet of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining upon us in the face of Jesus Christ as he comes to us and speaks to us in this portion of Holy Scripture. And it's in his holy name that we ask these things. Amen. President Calvin Coolidge was not known for his talkativeness. A story, perhaps apocryphal, says that one Sunday he attended a worship service without his wife. When he returned home, she asked him what the minister had talked about. Sin, replied Silent Cow. What did the preacher say about sin, his wife persisted. Coolidge replied, he was against it. (laughs) Coolidge's answer is a succinct summary of our passage, which tells us what God thinks about sin. And yet my prayer for us is to see far beyond the president's seeming indifference to this truth. God is not merely against sin, but he will ultimately triumph over it. And that's the big idea that I want us to believe this morning. Here it is. If you align with your sin against God, he will curse and conquer you. But if you align with God against your sin, he will constrain your sin, carry it away, and conquer it forever. But how would the prophet teach us about sin? What does it mean for God to triumph over sin? Well, that's what I want us to see this morning. So if you're not there already, turn in your Bibles to Zechariah 5. Four times in our passage, the prophet lifts his eyes to see what God has revealed to him. May we do the same. I want us to see four actions from God against sin. We'll look at sin cursed in verses 1 through 4, sin constrained in verses 5 through 8, sin carried away in verses 9 through 11, and sin conquered in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. So first, sin cursed. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. So Zechariah sees this huge scroll, 30 feet by 15 feet, like a huge billboard in the sky, flying through the land. Scrolls in the Old Testament often symbolize God's judgment, and that's the case here. The angel, speaking with Zechariah, says, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land of Israel. You know, one of the most misunderstood concepts in our culture today is the idea of a curse. There is widespread confusion with and aversion to this concept. Some think of occult practices, such as poking a replica doll with pins to inflict pain on a person, 
or having a witch doctor place a hex on someone to cause trouble in their life. Still, others think of superstitions tied to poor performance. We, we think of the curse of the Bambino, where after winning four titles in seven years, the Boston Red Sox sold Babe Ruth's contract to the New York Yankees, who proceeded to win 26 championships before Boston finally won the World Series in 2004. We think of the Cleveland curse, where no professional team from Cleveland won a championship for 52 years until the Cleveland Cavaliers finally won the NBA Finals in 2016. There's even something called the Madden curse, where football players who appear on the cover of this video game end up getting injured or declining in performance the following season. And for those of you who are younger and keep up with pop culture, there is something called the Kardashian curse, where men who date a Kardashian woman soon thereafter see their professional and personal lives unravel. However, if we want to, our understanding to conform to God's truth as revealed in his word, the scriptures, we have to understand the curse on God's terms. We're told that this scroll has two sides, similar to the two tables of God's law. And two sins are mentioned from each table. Stealing, which is the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, and swearing falsely by God's name, which combines both the ninth and the third commandments, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And this sin-seeking scroll bearing God's law reminds us that what determines sin is God's word. We are not the ones who create moral reality, try though we might. We cannot revise moral truth by deciding for ourselves what is right and wrong. This scroll goes forth with God's law, not with man's opinion. Its standards are not those of the latest polls, but of God's holy character. Our moral judgment is fatally flawed, like a distorted mirror in a carnival. What is straight, our hearts show as crooked. And what is crooked, our hearts show as straight. And so God gives us his law as a mirror in which to see ourselves truly, to know sin and ourselves as sinners the way that God does. And this message is of great importance in our age of moral relativism. What was wrong yesterday is tolerated today and will be approved tomorrow. We have thrown out the word sin for dysfunction and left its definition to be decided by sociologists and psychologists and legislators. As our theories and tastes change, so do our moral codes. But this vision declares that God determines what is right and wrong. His standards are not based on our studies, or trends or claims to progress, still less on our abilities, but on his holy character as revealed in his law. He has fixed the standards of sin and righteousness. He has revealed these to us, and they are as unchanging and unchangeable as he is. If you want to know what is right and wrong, the place to go is the law of God, which this scroll displays in large letters. Revelation from the Lord that is clear and unambiguous and utterly binding. What you see condemned in God's law may not seem bad to you. Everybody else might do it. The government might allow it. The gatekeepers of popular culture might applaud it. But it is by his law that God identifies sin, and every sin will surely be discovered. Now you might be thinking, I've never stolen anything. I've always told the truth in court. These Israelites may have stolen and sworn falsely, but I haven't. But friends, we are all 
thieves, whether or not we've ever robbed a bank. We've stolen from our employers and from others what we rightly owed to them. And most of all, we've stolen from God by robbing him of his glory, by claiming it for ourselves. And so we all stand condemned before God as thieves and robbers, both materially and spiritually. Likewise, James 5.12 reminds us, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Have you ever failed to fulfill a promise? Said one thing, but done another? Sworn by someone or something other than God? The law condemns you. Your appeal to your law-keeping will not stand before the Lord of glory. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If you try to rely on keeping God's law, you stand under God's curse because you have failed to keep all that the law requires. Paul, there in Galatians, quotes Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, which speaks of the blessings and the curses of the covenant. And in the original context, God's curse applies if one fails to obey the law perfectly. Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Perfect obedience is required to avoid the curse. The only way to gain life under the law is to keep every stipulation of the law. And no one does everything required by the law. None of us has perfectly obeyed. We have all disobeyed. We all fall short of the law's perfect standards. And therefore, if we rely on our law-keeping as our pathway to God's blessing, we won't make it. If we trust in our own righteousness, then we stand under God's curse. And so God, in his law, pronounces a curse upon lawbreakers. And this curse, we're told, is sent by God to clean out the houses of the thief and the falsewear and consume them completely. Or to put it differently, you can run, but you cannot hide. The judgment of God cannot be escaped. And the judgment promise matches the offense perfectly. Right? To those for whom material prosperity and its pursuit trumps personal integrity, the Lord will strike at the very heart of their material comforts. He'll take their house away. The curse will consume the very things we pursue and come to live for. It shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Those of us who are prepared to sacrifice holiness for happiness will find that pursuing happiness without holiness will eat away at us so that we attain neither in the end. Friends, sin is destructive. It is personal, but it is never private. These homes were consumed, leaving those inhabitants left standing outside in the rubble. It destroys homes, families. It consumes us. It brings trouble with it. No good can come of sin. And so those who break God's law are cursed. But we haven't yet felt fully what it means to be under the curse because apart from Christ, that's where all of us stand. And maybe some of you here this morning are still under that curse. And so we need to feel the weight. So let's, let's go back to the context of the Old Testament 
you recall that the law was tied to a larger structure called a covenant. And a covenant is a relationship between oath-bound parties. To be sure, in a covenant there are stipulations. But at its heart, a covenant is a relationship. When Cheryl and I married, we entered into a covenant relationship. And there are stipulations in this relationship. Right? We promise to do certain things, to love and to cherish, to submit and respect, to honor and obey, and so on. But in the ancient world, covenants also had sanctions. These would be the rewards and the penalties. Rewards for keeping the stipulations of the covenant and penalties for violating the stipulations. And God's covenant with Israel was no exception. It spelled out dual sanctions for obedience and disobedience. However, it did not use the language of rewards and penalties. Rather, the Old Covenant called the reward for obedience a blessing and the penalty for disobedience a curse. And Deuteronomy 28 spells out these blessings and curses of the covenant. Listen to what God spoke to his people through Moses. Now, if you faithfully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all his commands I'm giving you today, the Lord your God will put you far above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come and overtake you because you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. Your offspring will be blessed and your land's produce and the offspring of your livestock, including the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks. Your basket and kneading bowl will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. Right, do you hear the litany? It's as if God is saying, if you keep these terms, if you obey the commands... I have given you, I'll bless you when you stand up, I'll bless you when you sit down, I'll bless you when you roll over, I'll bless you when you're silent, I'll bless you when you speak, I'll bless you when you're in the city, I'll bless you when you're in the country, I'll bless you when you're on the highway, I'll bless you when you're on the seas, everywhere you go, everything you do, you will be blessed. But then we come to the scary part, the part where God says, but, listen again to Deuteronomy 28. But if you do not obey the Lord your God, but carefully following all his commands and statutes I am giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and kneading bowl will be cursed. Your offspring will be cursed and your land's produce, the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. Do you hear the parallels? God is saying, if you obey, you'll be blessed. But if you disobey, you'll be cursed when you stand up. You'll be cursed when you sit down. You'll be cursed when you're in the city. You'll be cursed when you're in the country. Your children will be cursed. Your cattle will be cursed. Your sheep will be cursed. Everything you have and everything you do will be cursed. But let's press further into what it means to be blessed and cursed. Because to the Jew... Blessedness meant receiving supreme favor from the Lord. Perhaps you've heard that benediction in Numbers 6. God commanded the priests to bless the people by saying, May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. Do you hear the parallels? The blessing of God meant the face of God shining on you and God looking upon you with favor. That's what supreme blessedness means. It's the vision of God looking God in the face as a man speaks to his friend, and him looking back at you with favor. 
Of course, the only way to look God in the face is to be near him. The closer you are to God's presence, the greater the blessedness. But the farther removed you are from God, the less the blessedness. And that, my friends, is what the curse is like. The supreme form of cursedness is for the Lord to turn his back on you, to bring judgment on you. To be cursed is to be cut off from the presence of God, never to see the light of his face, to be cast into the outer darkness. That's how the Jew understood the curse. And so this vision is a warning to everyone. This huge flying scroll has already gone out. God's judgment is imminent, and there is no escaping it. How terrible it is to fall into the hands of God, for he will punish the ungodly and the wicked until he reduces them to nothing. For all who reject the Lord and seem to get away with it in this life, this vision reminds us of another scroll that is in the hands of the risen Lord Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, a scroll whose seals he is breaking, bringing judgment that will culminate in the great day of God's wrath from which no one can hide. So anyone who relies on observing the law to achieve a relationship with God, who trusts in his own good works, in his own performance, that person is bound to experience the curse of God. Because God's standard is perfection, which none of us sinful, disobedient human beings can achieve. Those who break God's law, who sin against the Lord and against their neighbor, are cursed. And if that's the only truth that Christianity has to say, then we have no hope. We're all doomed to judgment. And God has every right to curse us all. But the good news of the gospel is that God has provided a solution. This vision points us forward to the curse that fell on Jesus in our place. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That is what it took to redeem us from the curse of the law. The one who was the incarnation of God himself became the incarnation of the curse. It was our curse he became, our judgment he suffered, our wrath that he bore. Christ became a curse for us so that one day we will be able to see the face of God. God turned his back on his son so that he could look with favor on sinners, on us. This is the hard reality of the gospel. If Jesus was not forsaken by his father on the cross, if he did not bear our curse, we are still in our sins. We are still under the curse. We have no redemption, no salvation, no forgiveness. And that's why the cross was absolutely necessary. Jesus had to bear our curse. He had to be forsaken. Jesus endured the curse so that we might experience the blessedness of the Father. And so our sins should drive us again and again back to that cross where Jesus made a full atonement for our sins. There at the foot of the cross, we renounce our works and despair of our own righteousness. There we remember that we are forgiven, justified, freed, and blessed forever. And there we are moved to humble worship that God in Christ and his holy love for us was willing to go to such lengths that the blessings we enjoy now and forever are due to the curse that he bore for us. 
And it is this glorious work of Christ that the next vision looks forward to. So we've seen sin cursed. Now secondly, we see sin constrained. Look at verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. So this angel exhorts Zechariah to lift his eyes again to another vision. And the prophet now sees a basket. Some translations might say an ephah going out. And these baskets were used as a kind of measuring jar. They had a capacity of somewhere around five gallons, often used for trading in the marketplace, reinforcing, again, that the besetting sins of God's people at this time were economic in character. But unusually, this basket is fitted with a heavy lead covering. And now the image takes a turn toward the grotesque, doesn't it? As the lid is lifted, Zachariah sees a woman crouching inside the basket. The woman's name is wickedness. She is the sin of the people personified. She is wickedness. Now commentators suggest several explanations as to why wickedness is portrayed as a woman. Certainly, this passage is not teaching that women are intrinsically wicked. Actually, throughout scripture, abstract ideas are often portrayed as feminine. In the book of Proverbs, both lady wisdom and Madame Folly are portrayed as feminine. The church is called the Bride of Christ, while Babylon, the city of evil, is likened to a prostitute. Some commentators suggest the reason Zacharias sees a woman is so that the symbol might agree in gender with the noun that identifies her. Right? The word wickedness is feminine in form, so this symbol, naturally enough, is a woman. Whatever the reason, right, the overall point is clear. Sin is wickedness, and it wants control over us. Look what happens in verse 8. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. The verbs there are physical and forceful. He thrust her back down, thrust down the weight. There's a, there's a struggle going on, do you see? And the woman called wickedness, the point I think we're meant to grasp, is that she wants to be free to deceive the people of God at will. She wants to prosecute her campaign of deceiving the people as they pursue their selfish and self-centered ends without restraint, without any hindrance. Do you remember how the Lord warned Cain of sin's power back in Genesis 4? Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. We're fooling ourselves if we think sin won't go down without a fight. The Apostle Paul described this battle in Romans 7. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And notice the basket is full of iniquity. All of God's people's iniquities are contained in this basket. And friends, our sins, they are many. But praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Because as dangerous as sin is, God is in complete control over it. Wickedness is thrust down, covered over. Her deceit is constrained. Her enslaving power contained. The Lord will not allow her free reign. And that's good news. Friends, here's the other side of God's triumph over sin. It's a word of mercy. And how thankful we should be for this picture, that God doesn't simply condemn our sin, but he also acts mercifully to constrain it. The evil forces in this world, and even the evil within our own hearts, cannot transgress the boundaries established by God. God is never threatened by the workers of evil, but rather works all things, even sin and evil, together for good, according to the counsel of his will. Zechariah's vision reminds us of what is surely one of the most overlooked mercies of God's grace in our lives. You know, many of us battle with besetting sin on a daily basis, and the fight isn't easy. Sometimes we struggle. Sometimes we lose the struggle. We stumble, we fall, and when we do, guilt can overwhelm us. The voice of a self-recriminating conscience relentlessly condemns us. And in the midst of that experience, it's easy to forget that God has already been graciously restraining sin in our lives. So that though we may have stumbled and fallen and struggled and battled, we're not as bad as we might have been had God not been all the time working by his word and spirit to hold our wickedness in check. Sin does not have free reign. It's, it no longer has dominion over us. Praise God that that's true if you're a believer in Christ. Wickedness is not free to ensnare and deceive us. However she wills, the sovereign Lord keeps her malice in check. And that knowledge ought to reassure us in the daily fight against sin. And even though we might lose a particular skirmish, we remember it's the Lord, not wickedness, who has dominion over us. Sin, however grotesque and malevolent, as, as mighty and it may appear to be, is not now the ruling power in your heart, believer. Right? Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Sin is not in charge, does not hold the reins in your life if you're a believer in Christ this morning. The sovereign Lord restrains wickedness and its malice, and he reigns even in your heart today by his spirit. Sin cursed and sin constrained. Third, sin carried away. Look at verse 9. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. So God puts wickedness in its place. He gives his people a good look at wickedness, but so they can wave goodbye as he sends it away. And that's really the, the thrust of this section. You know, it's easy to get lost in the details and miss the point of what is going on. Right? Essentially, you've got these two women functioning as God's servants. They have wings like the wings of a stork. Storks were migratory birds, which is fitting since these women are going on a journey. 
And they lift up the basket of sin and take it to the land of Shinar. Now, Shinar is the name that's used in Genesis 11 for Babylon, right? Where the Tower of Babel was built. It's the old name. It's the capital city of rebellion against the Lord. So the woman in the basket is not taken to a mere geographical area, but to that particular place where wickedness not only dwells, but is even worshipped. A temple, that's what the house is, a temple is built for her, and she's placed on an idol pedestal for those in the city to worship. For now. You know, as I was reading this with my kids this week, trying to explain it to them, I reminded them how every week we fill up our cans with garbage. And every Thursday, two men come by on a truck, and they take those cans, and they dump out the trash, and then they take that trash where it belongs. And of course, the place where that belongs is the dump. It's the landfill. That's kind of what's happening here. God is removing sin from the Holy Land. He's gotten his people out of Babylon, and now he's getting Babylon out of the people. He's carrying wickedness away to the place where sin and sinners dwell. Now, Zechariah is not told how exactly God would do this in history. But we know from the rest of the story, don't we? Some 500 years later, another prophet came out of the desert in Palestine, and he called the whole nation to take a bath because the kingdom of God is coming. And while he was involved in the process of preparing people for the breakthrough of the kingdom of God, he saw a man approaching him in the distance, and he stopped what he was doing, and he sang the Agnes Day, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle John said, You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. At the cross, the condemnation announced by Zechariah's scroll engulfed Christ so that instead we might be engulfed in God's mercy. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through Christ's atoning death on the cross, his bodily resurrection from the dead, God triumphed over sin. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Brothers and sisters, behold the vastness of God's love for his people. He who has cursed our sin has vowed to carry it away, every last sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Ought not this beautiful truth ought to move us to tears? Oh, what magnificent, marvelous, matchless love. It should move us to sing one day when heaven was filled with his praises. One day when sin was as black as could be. Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, dwelt among men, my example is he. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sin far away. Rising, he justified freely, forever. And one day, he's coming. Oh, glorious day. Praise God for the gospel of grace that not only restrains sin's worst effects, but takes away its curse forever. And that leads us to our final point. We've seen sin cursed, sin constrained, 
sin carried away, and now we see sin conquered. Chapter 6, verse 1. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country, the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. So Zacharias sees four chariots of colored horses coming out from between two bronze mountains. If you recall, the the pillars of the temple were bronze, so this likely symbolizes God's cavalry, his army deployed from his heavenly temple. It's not King Darius who has the premier cavalry. It's Yahweh who has the chariots to go out to the four compass points of the earth. And I wonder if these horses ring a bell for you. Because if you recall, in the very first vision, Zechariah saw a vision of different colored troops of horses. Right Back in chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, he saw a similar vision. In that vision, the horses were sent on a reconnaissance mission into the world, patrolling the earth, and reporting the condition of the world back to the Lord. And the report came in verse 11, all the earth remains at rest. The nations were at ease. And that provokes chapter 1, verse 15, the exceeding anger of the Lord. The quiet rest of the nations was a self-assured, self-reliant rest, an arrogant, overconfident resting in their own sufficiency, in their own might, their own security. But these are the nations that oppose the law. They reject the worship of God. They troubled the people of God. And so God promised that his judgment would fall upon them in due course. Right? That, was, that was Zechariah's first vision of the eight. And now it's like it's bookended. We're coming back to it. Zechariah sees again four troops of colored horses. Only now their mission is not reconnaissance. Now it is action. Right? These are chariots. These are weapons of war. God is enforcing his justice. He's defending his people. Two chariots, black and white, are sent to the north where the Assyrians and the Babylonians descended upon Israel. Another chariot, the dappled horses, is sent to the south toward Egypt, another enemy of God's people. So here is the Lord, whose word is utterly reliable, keeping his promises. He's following through, defending his people, executing justice upon their oppressors. So that now, instead of the nations being at rest, it is God himself, his own spirit, who is at rest. Right? In Deuteronomy 12, verse 10, the book of Joshua, right, we see that the land would have rest from war. So giving rest implies the full and the final defeat of all those opposed to God and to his people. We see a vision here that justice is done. God's people are protected. His promises are kept. His spirit is at rest. And so this vision answers a question raised by the previous one. Will these idolaters possess Babylon forever in an ongoing enmity to God? Will there always be a threatening location 
from which to launch regular attacks on God's people from the north. And Zechariah's vision responds, no. God will ultimately send out his power to the uttermost corners of the earth. And his spirit will reign throughout the world, even in the place where now the seat of idolatry is located. The nations that at present feel secure in their opposition to God, well, they're in for an unpleasant surprise when, they, when the Lord rouses himself to action. Now, this vision of God conquering sin gave hope to God's people in that day. And it's the foundation for our own hope in our day. God triumphs over sin. God is saying to his people, don't be scared, return to exiles. Don't give up, dwellers in broken down Jerusalem. Don't concede defeat, you who face the scorn of the world. My spirit is at rest. My rule is effortless and untroubled by the worst hostility of the nations. I've got this under control. My people will not have to contend with such oppression forever. I love how Revelation 6 builds on this vision. There the Apostle John sees four different colored horses, white, red, black, and pale. Each horse rides out in judgment when a seal of the scroll in the hand of the Lamb is opened. But unlike Zechariah, the colors of the horses seem to reflect their judgment tasks, with white representing conquest, red bloodshed, black famine, and pale death. I think that these are not a sequence of judgments so much as a combination, a combination of judgments that fall on the world now that Christ has died and been raised. They're, they're evidence of God's present activity in the world, and they point to his final judgment. There, jo there John's vision in Revelation 6 comforts us, doesn't it? That God has all things in hand, no matter how horrible they are. And then, when you get to Revelation 19, the rider on the white horse is identified in such lofty language that should make all the struggling, suffering people of, in their hearts sing and leap for joy amidst sin and suffering. Listen to Revelation 19:11 and following. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. What Zechariah saw as a message of comfort for his own suffering people becomes, in the full unfolding of God's revelation, a message of comfort for the whole people of God in every age. One day, on the last day, Jesus Christ will ride forth on that white horse to defend his people. He will conquer the nations by the word of his mouth. He will separate the righteous from the wicked and fix forever their eternal destinies in heaven and hell. He will establish his eternal kingdom of righteousness and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And that is the great truth that changes everything for you if you're a Christian this morning. How do you keep going when people hate you? You remember 
who sits on the throne and who rides forth to conquer? How do you keep going tomorrow when you don't know if you have enough strength for today? You remember your Jesus is king and he has triumphed over sin. How do you fight on in your war against sin and not sign a truce on any front? You remember that though the world, the flesh, and the devil oppress you, the Lord's spirit is at rest. They don't phase him in the slightest. Even if they phase you, he will defend you, he will protect you, and he will keep you by the power of God for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Jesus reigns, and Jesus Christ is Lord. And let me speak to you right now. If you are not a Christian, I want you to understand what this means for you. If you will not have Jesus to save you and rescue you, you will have him to judge you and conquer you. He will fight against you with the word of his mouth, and he will win. Oh, that his triumph over sin might be the happy victory of grace in your heart, rather than the terrible triumph of his wrath hereafter. So where do you stand with respect to God and to your own sin? Are your sins still upon you so that you resent the thought of God staring at you? Be sure that God is there. Your sins will be discovered. And if they're not taken from you by the cross of Christ, then the Lord God will curse you. You'll be cast from his presence into the realm of darkness forever. God's holiness stands against you, and if you die in your sins, you will be lost. Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. But that doesn't have to happen to you. Jesus also said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. Friend, your sins will not be hid from God. They will not escape the judgment. But if you confess them, if you will judge yourself to be a sinner, and then if you will turn to Christ in faith, begging him for his mercy, then your sin will be removed from you. It will be placed on his cross, and then you will be brought to God to know his love, to live now as a beloved member of his family, and one day to enter that city where sin dwells no more, and to reign with God forever, face to face. There we will be completely clean and holy. Right? Wonderful, the thought. We'll be free from sin. God's triumph over sin will be completed. So the visions are set before you. If you align with your sin against God, he will curse you and conquer you. But if you align with God and his son against your sin, then he will carry it away forever constrain it in this life, and one day conquer it forever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus who sits on your throne. Thank you for his atoning death. Thank you for his glorious resurrection from the dead. Thank you for the promise of his coming. His glorious appearing when he will conquer sin fully, finally, and forever. What a wonderful hope. Lord, help us to rest in your reign amidst all our present sin. And we pray for any here who are not trusting in Christ and aligning themselves in allegiance to him. 
Please, we ask, will you bring them to yourself? Constrain them. Carry their sins away. Conquer every rebel power and make them yours. Save them. Lord, we ask that your triumph in their hearts might be present here, the happy victory of grace. Spare them and deliver them from the terrible triumph of eternal wrath that faces everyone who relies on the works of the law and not on the blood of your Son. Have mercy upon sinners, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.